This podcast is brought to you by Hello Future. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, expand your patent portfolio, create amazing new profitable products and services, or effectively project manage to market? Then contact us today, hellofuture.co, and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups, and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Can you hear me? I sure can. How are you doing today, Chris? How's it going? It's I'm going so excellent. Good. I love that background. You've got like my dream, uh, my dream backgroundscape. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the place that has that combination of um, fireplace and beachfront, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it just seems like it may. Probably. Uh, I don't know if it's real or CG. So hopefully, <laughs> that'd be nice, right? Yeah, like where you have like the the. I guess it's the Hamptons, right? Like you you have a a, a certain level of cold, and then you walk out. Well, I guess, you know, maybe some parts of California, too, I guess, are like that, too, so. Yeah. Well, everybody yeah. tells me it's like, I'm too close to the beach. I'd have to keep cleaning up after it, right? Because it's just like. Yeah, that's true, right? That's like, that becomes like your backyard, right? Like, you're not, clean your backyard up, Chris. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. I just have to keep raking back there. It'd be like my own personal giant Zen garden. Like... Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Chris. Absolutely. Great to meet you as well. I mean, I, I was looking at your uh, the little note you had here about. Um, uh, that's a great. I, I love that. Uh, I love that phrase. Dinosaur distance dinosaurs and and damn do gooders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a. It's a. Um, it is a uh, ode to my uh, reflections on my career to date, and kind mm -hmm. of what I've seen in the. Uh, over the life cycle of trying to, uh, you know, just just create solutions, you know, mm -hmm. um, you'll find yourself working with a, a, a lot of success hounds, but yeah. you find very, very few solution hounds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so here's, a, that's an interesting, so what do you define as success? Well, maybe let's, let's step back a bit. Usually I go, Hey, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? And <laughs> just jump right in. I'm fine with that. We could just we could work it like a novel. We could do the exciting stuff up front, then we'll do the <laughs> the backstory later. However, however you want to do it. Uh, you know, I um this is like the, the my favorite topic to discuss, which is the future. And so um because I think uh I think one of the most limiting things, unfortunately, and I I you know, I, I was trained in behavior, right? And so Behavior believes that uh, behaviorists believe that uh, the greatest predictor of the future is is what you is your past behavior, and there was obviously you know reams of literature that support that, and I don't disagree. But I believe personally that for futurists, people who are committed to charting a new path and a new direction and a new 
that the greatest predictor of future is how much time you spend thinking about the future. And, um, and that's what sets them apart from the reams of, of people who uh, move lockstep with uh, that uh, theory of, you know, um, the greatest predictor of your future behavior is your past behavior. That's what makes the futurist and the traditional individual different. And so um, I try to spend, if there's 24 hours in a day, I try to spend 23 and a half thinking and focusing and being committed to uh, charting a different future uh, for the things that I encounter in the world. And, um, and I just think that's needed. So, you know, reading your website and hearing more about you, I'm hoping that, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm glad to do this, but I'm hoping that we can become friends and, 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 and colleagues and remain connected towards the future so that uh, I have yet another compadre to talk about uh, the, the thing that I'm so committed to. Absolutely. That sounds great. Well, no, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally in agreement with you because it, it's kind of like people think that the future and the past are connected when in reality they aren't, they're completely different realities, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you have, you have the reality that you went through to get to this point, And then there's a completely new reality coming up in front of you and you can use the past to design your new, your new reality or your future but it doesn't necessarily need to be so. I mean, it's only people who are living in the past who say, oh, I wanna repeat this, I wanna repeat that, who make these things happen again. But if you spend time thinking about the future, you can absolutely create and design a whole new reality for yourself. Exactly. Even if you, you know, whatever happened in the past, happened in the past. It is connected to as, as much as the past is the, is the previous future. That's as much as it's connected. It is the previous future. And that's what I try you know, to tell you know, students, colleagues, whomever, that if you look at the past as future, the previous future, then you'll look at it as solely a opportunity to learn the process of charting a new future. That's it, but not the content, just the process. So how did those people a hundred years ago think about the future yeah. and use that? But I don't really care you know, so much about what they, what the outcome was and what the product was of that thinking as much as I care about the process that they use to, to chart it. Yeah, absolutely. And do you see, do you find, but they think, find that the process used also changes too. True, true. Yeah. Very much so. It, it, and, and it changes based on the, co the context of where you are, the environment and where you are, the, the, the people who are around you, um, all those things change, you know, and so you have to change with it. But I think, you know, there are some universal laws, you know, um, your ability to overcome your context is, is I think, um, and learning how people did it. You know, I always, the, so the thing that I always found funny, like Benjamin Banneker, right? So Benjamin Banneker invents, you know, uh, the, uh, the, pr the precursor to the traffic light, right? So here you have a black man, um, who can't even really own or drive a car at the time, thinking about something that, in essence, he will never himself benefit from or realize for, as a benefit for himself, but still creates it. Now, think about that. Like, that's, that to me is hallmark to a futurist, right? Like, I, you know, void of all those other things, I could care less, but that is the future. And so I have to create it because that's just who I am. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are many things that, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, in my time and career, I have witnessed that have been that way. People with 99-year land leases and 99-year um, development plans. And I'm like, why would you design a 99-year development plan? And they're like, because that's the future. What am I going to do? You know, like, and so I just think that's, that's just brilliant. But it's also a, a certain level of altruism that never gets credit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the best inventors are the ones who, they don't look at it for the money. They don't look at it by, for money at all. They just say, mm-hmm. here's a problem, here's a problem. And usually it's something that, that is their problem, right? It's a, it's a problem that they have. And then they apply they apply their brains to it and they go, well, I want to solve this problem. And they don't care about what comes out of it. They just right. want to create a thing and they just hope, I mean, if they can build it themselves, they can. But if it just, it just gets built and becomes something new. That's why I like Elon Musk so much. He's like the, the Hyperloop, he just goes, here's the thing. I can't build it. So somebody else try. I mean, right. and I think that's, like, that's the best kind of inventor who's like constantly creating uh, solutions and then just whether they can they can do them or not, just put them out there and and see what would happen. Because it's just so there therein lies the, the distinction between success and solution, right? So a successful person only does things to the extent that it is self rewarding or self aggrandizing, right? And so um, if if they will not themselves reap success from it, then it, it it's not worth their time. Those individuals who are solution oriented could care less about the credit. They are in it for the solution. And it is, that is their ultimate reward. And so, like you said, so, so appropriately, it's not about the money or any of those things. And in some cases, some rare cases, um, those individuals end up going on to be, you know, enormously wealthy or successful. And even then you reap even more benefit because they use their wealth to uh, further um, improve and, and create more solutions in the case of Elon Musk, whatever people may think about him or whatever, uh, you know, um, uh, he, he, I think, has, has uh, created a tremendous uh, thought infrastructure and um, uh, uh, that, that I think will yield benefit for society for, you know, eons to come. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, anybody can do it. I think that the key thing is how do you actually get this invention out there? I mean, we can all postulate different futures and solutions for those futures, but a lot of times they're just, they're just, they just, they're just hidden, right? They're just like, how do they actually get out there so that they can be executable in some way? Um, And how do they, how do you spread that to the masses? That's, I think that's the the most difficult part now. It's kind of like anything else. It's like, it used to be, oh, if you build it, they will come. And now it's like, if you build it, they won't come until you scream about it. Right. Well, you know, when I started in academe, you know, I tell my, my colleagues this all the time, my young, my junior colleagues, that when I started in academe, the goal was to be uh, the most rigorous and the most accurate. Today, I have to be the most popular. It is not enough for me to be the most rigorous and the most accurate. I must simultaneously be the most popular because the most popular science is the one that is heard, not the most accurate or rigorous. And so that has changed the game in how we do things. And in fairness, some of that has to do with the delivery of, um, of knowledge and, um, and, 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 uh, and the speed at which knowledge can be translated from um, the, the scientific method to 
uh, marketing and communications, right? So I, I literally can have, um, so, you know, it used to be that you had to have a grand announcement uh, and, and it had to be done by some third party who, you know, CDC, NIH, whomever to announce your work. Well, now, you know, we could literally walk to the green room down the hallway, uh, convene a press conference by, you know, um, uh, Twitter or Instagram and tag NIH and CDC in it. And, um, and, and we're off to the races. And I can make the case also that my institution would be mad at me if CDC or NIH announced it and they didn't because it would ruin their click-through for their own website. And so these are the things you, had to, you have to know today that you didn't have to know when I first started my career. And, um, and I think there's, there's a greater autom autonomy for researchers now than ever before, right? I'm hoping that, and I, I talk about this a lot now with my, my junior colleagues, is that you know, they should all be thinking about creating their own research uh, corporation. It's really no plus anymore to writing a grant at an institution and giving them 50% of your grant when you can house that on your own um, many times uh, from your bedroom. And so, um, so, you know, I think we're going to see that. I think also, you know, and this has been controversial, but I, I continue to say it, I do believe that we're moving in a direction where research will be um, uh, vetted more from a Yelp, a Yelp concept than this peer review thing. And people hate me saying that, but we already kind of Yelp research. Um, I, I can do the greatest research in the world, but there's a handful of people in my space that have to sign off on it and repeat it or, or cite it, right? Which is, yep. uh, which is basically, right? Citing is basically um, the previous century um, like, likes and, and shares, right? I mean, come on, let's, let's just call it what it is, right? That's the dinosaur. And so I talk about dinosaurs, there's a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. The dinosaur way of likes and shares was citing, right? And so yeah. now, if, you know, if no one ever cites my article, but, you know, a handful of these very prominent, well-respected scientists share my research on their Twitter, I guarantee you, uh, if, if a thousand citations will never equate ever to even three high impact researchers sharing it or liking it. And I can monetize the latter and not the former. And mm -hmm. so that's why I think uh, we're, we're moving in a direction where um, research and, and what we call science will be a world of likes and shares like everything else. And are we ready for that? Are scientific journals ready for that? Are ac academicians and how they're trained ready for that? Um, are they ready? So, you know, most things that get hacked, get hacked due to arrogance. And there is no infrastructure more arrogant than the academic ivory tower. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the question I have there is, I've heard this said before, where people say, "Well, it has to be cited by you know specific individuals because they're the ones who they're they're the ones who have import, they have right. power, right?" Yeah. And and but nowadays, if you get if it if it's crowdsourced and you get people from all over the world saying you know sharing and liking and whatever, then does that does that dim, diminish 
the, the power between the people who are the, like these specific individuals who say, I, I have to bless this, or if enough people from all over the world say, listen, this thing is important, we need to talk about it, and they don't necessarily need to be cr that credentialed. I mean, we, don't, do, do you think that that makes it as important or less important? I think, I think, I think you're going to see, you know, um, I think science needs to now be viewed um, as uh, every, every research project, every scientific endeavor is a startup. If you look at it from that standpoint, then your question becomes very clear cut, right? Anyone who's been in entrepreneurial ventures and startups recognize that, yes, um, you're going to have a handful of VCs who are going to ask you to, to demonstrate uh, proof of concept, blah, 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 blah. But then there's a group of um, VCs who take the word of another VC or take the word of uh, the buzz on the street, right? Um, you could you could have no articles about your product, but it, because you were announced at you know some major conference, and everyone's talking about you on Twitter and 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 Insta, um, they're ready to open their pockets for you. And mm -hmm. so I think you're going to see the same thing when it comes to science, right? You're going to have. I mean, we're seeing it with the you know with with, with coronavirus, right? I mean, uh, there's a you know I, I mean no no. Uh, um, disrespect to uh, the pharmaceutical industry and what they're ambitioning to do, but we have no way of knowing uh, the rigor that is taking place uh, with these vaccines or whatever. We're just being told through popular yeah. media that, hey, we got a vaccine, you know? Yeah. And um, those in the know uh, have to explain to me how all of a sudden we were able to create a vaccine in 12 months when in the previous years, I mean, previous centuries, we've had to spend enormous amounts of time to do the same thing. And so, um, and so, yeah, so we, you know, we're, we, we are at a, a exciting time in the trans, you know, in the, in the, in the transfer of uh, um, what was known and what is accepted. Uh, and, uh, and I just think that that's just so cool because I think it offers uh, a great opportunity for equity, um, voices that were never heard. You know, people in the, the local state university who do great work uh, can finally be heard. Or the young person who, you know, lives in some inner city who has now access to an incubator at some, you know, Fortune 5 tech company um, can now, you know, uh, not only uh, launch a business, but um, have it capitalized and run it and have a team of, of very highly skilled individuals support them virtually in doing it. Uh, to your point about global, you know, um, I can launch a venture here and I can have some expert in Morocco who is helping me day to day on it uh, and, and, uh, and probably leapfrog development stages that I never could have in the previous model of waiting for someone to to get involved more in an offline um, orientation. And so, yeah, I think it's just really cool. It's really cool. But this kind of leads to the thing that, you know, I wanted to talk about today, which is trust, right? Because trust um, is undermining a lot of our, not undermining, is limiting a lot of our ability to truly move at, at warp speed in these, um, in this innovation space and in this, in this, in this future um, uh, model, uh, because we have done so much damage um, as a society 
in being equitable, fair, and transparent with so many populations that when we need them most to trust us, they have, we have not, not a leg to stand on. And this is probably the most trust needy environment that you could ever live in. Uh, right? I mean, you got to get in, you, you, you know, you want transportation, you got to get in a stranger's car, you want, um, you, you want uh, information, you got to, you know, you want your news, you got to trust, you know, one of a, a billion podcasts or whatever, um, you know, you got to trust, right? And, and so I, um, that's why I believe the two fastest growing industries that rarely get talked about are, um, are going to be, um, trust, I mean, um, ethics and, um, and the humanities, right? Um, and, and, um, and they will in some ways become the um, aligned uh, industries with science that will help it propel um, to, the, to, the, to the lengths that it needs to propel to. Yep. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've always said that companies need a chief philosophy officer who can, who can do absolutely. that pieces. And I, I think you're absolutely right about the trust thing is that we're asking a lot of people to trust with no data, right? So uh, we almost need a whole trust infrastructure in place to say, you know, uh, this guy, is, this is a good person, you know, you can trust him, et cetera. It's almost like eBay listings, right? When I post something on eBay and people keep buying stuff from me, there's, I have a star rating, right? So if everybody had their own trust rating, then it would be easier for the next person to come along and say, oh, this guy has had trustworthy um, dealings with these thousand people. He's probably going to be trustworthy, trustworthy with me as well. But I want to go back for, to one thing that you, you mentioned earlier. So I was thinking about disruption in academia, right? So you've got all these pe credentialed people who are making decisions, but then that whole thing is need to, needs to be disrupted by the crowdsourcing and the quantification numbers as opposed to the qualifications. So mm -hmm. what does that do to higher education? I mean, does that mean higher education is also something that we need to disrupt? So I think higher education is already being disrupted. I just think that we, um, we have such a enormous investment in the status quo that, so, okay, so in, I'm gonna use healthcare as an example, right? So um, your, your typical um, electronic health record um, a health system is investing billions with a B to install and implement and launch these electronic health records. And there's a handful of them. There's not a lot of them, less than 10 that, ever, that the country is using. No one ever stopped to think to themselves, what happens if these guys got it wrong? Mm. Right? If they got it wrong, we're so in the hole to them that we can't change or change will be so financially disabling that we really can't forward ourselves. So I, I transpose that onto academe into higher education. We have put so much money into that system that making change is close to, a, is close to impossible without creating a new a whole brand new institution. You know, I, I, I jokingly say sometimes that um, Harvard and Yale and Brown should be thinking about uh, a new Coke model, like mm -hmm. new Harvard, new Yale, new Brown, right? That's built right next door. I love it. It's half the buildings 
and half the faculty <laughs> in your regular Harvard and your regular Yale, <laughs> right? Because they know that they're doing the most inefficient model of themselves. They don't want people to say it because they have enormous amounts of money that are pumping into that place. Yeah. But I think money pumping too. I mean, they don't want to stop. They don't want to stop. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but the, the halfway intelligent individual knows, come on, you could build the new Harvard right next door for half the buildings and half the faculty yeah, absolutely. and probably make more money to be honest with you. But anyway, that is the reality that many institutions are facing. And, um, and, and it's, it, there is that, there is this um, chasm between those elite IVs and the rest of the um, group where they're fighting to define their ROI. Mm -hmm. And it's not looking good. It's not yeah. looking good at all. And in the world of COVID, it's not looking good for anybody. Think about this. So what is the number one thing that people, that universities do to sell themselves? They offer tours and open houses. Why do they do that? Because they want you to see the great dorms and the student experience and whatever, whatever. Well, COVID has taught us that, well, you could operate that without the student experience and the buildings and the fancy stadiums and whatever, right? So now, as, you know, as we're seeing, right, not just with colleges, but elite private schools, high schools and middle schools, whatever, people are saying, well, you know, my kid's still getting a quality education to some extent, you know, those who are doing it right. Yeah. And they're not using that greenhouse, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know. Giant 12-story sports complex. Exactly. Somehow, some way, they're still getting it, right? And, um, and by the way, do I get a discount? Because I'm not using it. And that is disrupting the model. And yeah. we're never coming back from that, mm -hmm. right? Because now people are gonna look at that state school that doesn't have um, you know, all those uh, fancy accoutrements and say to themselves, you know, can I still get a good bargain here? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I think the answer is gonna be a resounding yes to some extent. I do believe that you know, there's enough smart people and enough business people to make to help the IVs make still make a case with the online version. And I think that that, you know, will, will resolve itself um, because there's just too many stakeholders and benefactors in that to, to, to lose. Yeah. But, um, but I think also we're gonna see some really exciting alternative models. You know, it used to be a, used to be a stuffiness about going to DeVry online or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody's not there anymore. Just, you know, nope. really nope. not, I mean, yep just not there. Um, I tell people all the time, uh, I don't remember the last time somebody asked me where I got trained. Mm. Right? I reached a point in my career where the, all they really care about is what I've done. They could care less where I trained. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to say maybe, maybe five years out of school that happened. Mm. Um, so if five years out, um, the legacy of my dollars, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost like driving a car off the lot. Yeah. You know, like the value of that place I just spent a bunch of money on is depreciated as soon as I walked off the campus and it's yeah. going down, down, down. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, maybe I should get the Hyundai. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I, I find that my, I find that it's, it's the hiring managers who have the, who have the problem with it. Right. 
most of the hiring it's like oh i i i'm a stanford grad i'm only going to i'm only going to hire stanford grads it's like mm-hmm. you don't need to you don't there's it's not necessary and i think it's going to take almost like a generation of people to say you know we don't it, we don't necessarily need you know this one at this li- this high level of education for this role it's we're still we're still seeing that happen because but then i think you pose an interesting point is like is going to yale or harvard or brown is it just branding are you going to getting the same quality level of education that you'd be getting if you went anywhere else? Well, so so here's here's my proposition, and we're already seeing this. I believe that the the space that the Yales, the Browns um, will move in is everyone who goes there goes free. Hmm. So once you do that, everything I just told you is eliminated in the discussion. So I believe that that's how they're going to get you. So they're going to say, look. Um, you come here, you don't pay a dime. We reward you for, you know, your um, achievement. And, uh, and we'll get somebody else to flip the, to, to you know, um, pay the tab. But yeah. you just be the best. Yeah. And, and we'll monetize you on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody will, you know, we'll have, you know, uh, preferential placements or whatever. Um, and, and that's how we're going to, we'll, we'll monetize it on the back end. Right. And so whereas right now you get out of school and there is, you know, a plethora of places and things you can do, you might end up now going there and and signing some 10 year commitment to some corporation. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an elite corporation, but you still do that commitment. Right. And um, we're seeing this in medicine, Uh, medicine, you know, um, uh, you, you know, they had the big announcement of NYU's medical school and everyone goes free there. Um, Kaiser Permanente opened a medical school. There's a privatized kind of model to it. And, and so now Kaiser will have um, the ability to have you come to their medical school, go to their residency program, and then go work for them. Yeah. Seems, seems like a lovely deal, right? The day that Stanford has so much money that they could let everybody in for free. Yeah. And they wouldn't feel it. They wouldn't even feel it. And yeah. it's probably the same endowments for all these other institutions are the same. Yeah, and so and so I think that's the model. They're going to delay it as much as humanly possible, build their coffers as much as possible. But I think that's really where it's all going to hit the road. Is that there'll be um, elite in their ability to mobilize uh, because they're going to basically they're going to sell it as altruism. You know that. Oh, you know, it's, these the, 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 it's criminal what these kids are paying in student loans. Blah 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 blah. And they're going to frame it like that, and then they're going to get these kids to come there and, and do whatever. And that will immediately uh, cream the population of students that are out there. Uh, it will put the other institutions um, at a disadvantage. You'll see some consolidation. And, um, and you know, and uh, so one thing you know, I've, I've found myself uh, not investing in from a future standpoint is um, thinking that I can own the uh, um, inadvertent uh, positives and negatives associated with uh, the innovations that will arrive in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, that one, I just, I, I, I don't feel comfortable even beginning to do that because I've seen so many horror stories. So right. it may be that, that that turns out to be a wonderful thing uh, for, for everyone involved, but I do know it does hopefully attack one major issue we're dealing with um, both in, in in um, in most industries, right? Uh, we only talk about it for the, the the ones who are struggling, but and that is student debt. You know, student debt yeah. is hurting us societally, not just in 
uh, what it's doing to the young person's ability to buy a home and, and, and start a life, but it's hurting our medical professionals and the amount of debt that we see our medical students um, carrying. Uh, and many, are, it's killing our social service sector because you, know, uh, you preferentially don't get the best because they have to work in industries that will allow them to pay back their loans. Um, and so it's crippling us from, from many different directions. But you know, I, you know, I have to always remind myself that you know, America is still the, the grandchild of the world. And so we, you know, we're a little slower to, to come to the realities about how some of these things have been addressed elsewhere. Yeah, well, how do you feel that, um, what do you feel could, needs to change about that kind of education, the medical education that they're getting today? I mean, is it just give it to them for free or is there, is there, is there a way of delivering it in, an, in a way that's less expensive or? Well, so it's interesting you say that, right? So I'm in Vegas right now because of, the, to answer just that question, right? So. Um, uh, this is my third uh, health professional school startup, right? Uh, I don't know if you knew that or not, um, but um, so I, I- You didn't tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. So this is my third, yeah, this is my third um, health professional school startup, right? The first one was a school of public health in Miami. The second was a new medical school, first of the new millennial schools, uh, medical schools in Miami. Um, and now I'm out here at Roseman University um, doing a new medical school as well. The commonality across all those, um, and the reason they, they um, recruit me is because of my um, interest in it, and I guess um, to the extent expertise in being able to um, reduce the distance between those institutions and um, the communities that they serve. And so that'd be the first thing that I would tell you. So, you know, um, I know you mentioned, you know, my three D's or whatever, but they really are true, right? The, the distance that exists between healthcare providers and their patients um, um, is enormous. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to keep in mind who is the typical medical student. The typical medical student um, is the sons and daughters of doctors. And so it truly is a family business. And so uh, as such, you have wealthy um, uh, sons and daughters going into a field. They usually come from uh, communities and uh, where they have limited to no interaction with people who are less fortunate or have even a middle-class background. And so, um, so you already have distance created based off that, just off of their own um, uh, life or lived experiences. Then there's the distance geographically. They, uh, you, you, uh, we had a, we, Myself, um, we set up uh, a program where we train medical students by requiring all of our medical students to perform home visits to low-income families. And they do this in teams that include, you know, nursing students and law students and social work students. And so this new way of training um, is to, once again, reduce the distance between um, the person who uh, is the provider and the person who is the patient consumer. And you may ask yourself, well, what's the big deal there? Well, the big deal is um, twofold. One, you know, um, like no other field, um, um, trying to address a person's illness requires that you have an understanding of that person at a level that is above and beyond the typical uh, client uh, um, salesperson relationship. 
Uh, and just honestly, the only thing most doctors know currently about you is what they can um, glean from that exhausting uh, registration paperwork they give you when you arrive. And, uh, and, and whatever questions they can ask, ask you in, in 15 minutes, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think all of us know that there's no way in the world that we could um, shoot. Do you understand that the, 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 the average patient-doctor interaction is just shy of the amount of time that you have at a drive-through? You're kidding. Right? If you, think, if you think about, like, you know, you stop at the first one, you place your order, you wait maybe five minutes, you get to the next window, you pay, you wait another five minutes. That's 10 minutes right there. 15 yeah. minutes is the target time span for a patient interaction. So think about that. Your doctor is achieving something with you um, in, the, in an approximate amount of time that it would take you to get your burger and fries. You should worry about that, right? Yeah. And, yeah, you should worry about that, right? Easy. But here's, here's another thing that we as society should worry about. And it goes to the other thing I was talking about is, so we ask um, uh, physicians to train in hospitals, oftentimes the public hospital. And, um, and so they go to the public hospital and they provide care to these individuals and in exchange, they learn their craft. And then as a society, we find it acceptable for us, for that same doctor who trained on that poor person in that public hospital to then have the option of accepting Medicaid, the insurance that covers poor people. So that means that I now can profit off of you with no mandate or requirement to give back to you when I now make a bunch of money. That to me is criminal. It is unethical. And so that's the thing that we're raging against in the work that we're doing um, here out in Las Vegas is that reality and, and showing that you can still do the right thing and still achieve your um, levels of prosperity that you seek to achieve. Um, yeah, you may, instead of getting, you know, the Porsche, you know, with, uh, with the fully custom uh, seats, you might have to bear and gruff it with the factory seats for a little while um, and, until, you know, until that time when you, you know, uh, make a little more money. And so um, that's, that's sort of uh, what we're doing. But the other part is, is that uh, we're really heavy on technology. Um, I spent about uh, seven to 10 years in Miami working on a um, platform that will help uh, physicians to, uh, in a glance view, be able to see uh, the social condition of a patient. And oh, it's user-driven, uh, it's user-driven um, data. Um, and so uh, it, it's um, the, the, the platform is called Humble, HMBL, and uh, you can kind of learn more about it by going to humblehealth.com, HMBLhealth.com. And, uh, and so that's going to be powering my work out here. Uh, we're going to be um, arming our medical group out here with that tool along with, uh, so that company uh, that I had Humble with a, a, um, the dean here at the, at the college, our new dean, Dr. Joe Greer. Um, uh, has recently been purchased by another company called Sonova Health. And Sonova Health is uh, doing groundbreaking work around a new electronic health record system. And so it's the goal to have these two things joined together to finally offer a platform system that will guide workflows that are more patient-centered 
uh, than what um, what we're currently doing. And you know, you know this from any technology, right? You want if you really want to promote change, you really have to give people tools for change. You can't just say, "Hey, I really like to see you do this thing," and not give them a tool to do it. If you want people to blend food faster, get them a, a blender that blends food faster. And That's so, right. if we want people to take in consideration um, people's social issues and what, what's going on with their family and what's going on with you know the quality of the household they live in, then you have to give people the tools to collect that information, see that information, and then workflows embedded in it that can do something about it. And that's what the Humble product does and allows health systems to do. And so there's a lot of excitement about being able to launch that out here. We're gonna launch it as part of what, uh, a, um, an initiative we're calling Genesis. And so Genesis is, is, is not about uh, creating a new beginning for Las Vegas. Uh, Genesis is about um, restoring the idealism within individuals. You know, all of us uh, went into our chosen profession uh, for a reason. There was some passion, something burning in us that said, you know, I really, I have, a, I love this, right? And mm -hmm. sadly, in many cases, as time goes on, um, that the not the not the industry, not the the the, the path itself, but the the industry beats that out of you slowly mm -hmm. over time. And, um, and, and the way it, the most effective way it does that is it eliminates your options for expressing your idealism, yep. right? You're like, oh, well, there's nowhere else I can go. So this is, I guess I just got to deal with this, right? Yeah. yeah. What Genesis is about, yeah, what Genesis is about is giving that young medical student that young physician, that young healthcare system, the opportunity to look over and say, oh, wow, that group over there is doing the thing that I got into this industry for. So it's a new beginning for individuals and in returning to their idealism. And so that's what Genesis is about. And so uh, we're, we're hoping to, to um, offer that out here. It'll, it'll train medical students a different way It'll offer um, health systems out here uh, a new way to deliver care, and it'll give us a new way of looking at the way that we organize communities. And so we're going to create this thing called the Genesis Zone, and that Genesis Zone will enable us to um, look at um, high-risk, low-income uh, households in a given area, uh, offer them a free, accessible Wi-Fi mess system, so eliminating the, the digital divide by just basically blanketing that area with Wi-Fi. And then we're looking at some of the other things that are, you know, there's a, a, a go, uh, go ahead um, project out here. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the autonomous vehicles, using autonom autonomous vehicles in, in health districts. So we, we're gonna look to leverage those hopefully as well, and, and, but use them for food delivery, use them for pharmaceutical um, uh, prescription delivery. Um, yeah, and so those are the things that we're trying to, we're, we're ambitioning to do out here uh, that will chart a new future in the way that we look at uh, um, healthy communities and, and, and medical school training and, and imagine a student, imagine sending your son and daughter out to something like that, where they, everything they walk, live and breathe is about um, helping individuals. What, what would that produce on the back end by way of the doctor of the future? And that's what we're yeah. trying to do out here. Fantastic. And that's actually, that's, that's the education. The education comes from the, 
experiencing of how to do those things. So there may be some training involved, but the education comes through the experiencing too. And I want to step back a little bit to what you were saying about the, so you said Genesis, can, does it actually connect people with their passion or did, does it allow them to create their own on the system? So, so um, like, like most, so I think the whole concept of incubators and, and accelerators had the right spirit, right? Give people an open, free space to create and, and watch them blossom. I think we're, we're a little different in this, um, not to say that we're an incubator or accelerator, we are a medical school, but, um, but if you draw upon that concept, uh, imagine that concept whereby everyone who was there was there to solve one central core problem or challenge. And so in our case, that challenge is, what are we going to do to, to increase equity across the spectrum of complementary fields related to healthcare? How are we going to have greater equity in the um, uh, percentages of minorities who are um, healthcare professionals and providers? How are we gonna have greater equity in the quality and access of healthcare for all populations? How are we going to have greater equity and, and, um, and transparency as it relates to the way that individuals participate in clinical trials? the drugs that ultimately are used on them uh, and, to, and, and, um, and used and studied uh, uh, using them. All of those things will be baked into what we do. One of the things that I, I tell people that I, we ambition to do out here is we, we are ambition to be the, the most prepared institution to provide services and care to the most high-risk patients in the country. That's the ambition, period. And so that, what, what that means is, is that every faculty member on our faculty here will be required to do home visits. Mm. Even if you're a basic scientist, you could be a guy who just does bench research, you will have to go out to a household and you will have to demonstrate a way of providing benefit to that household. It might be that you explain to them the importance of, of participating in clinical trials and what mm. that means. And if you have to create new skills and new understandings to do that, that's what it takes to come to work with us um, yeah. because that's our, our ultimate goal. And, and that does not discredit the other institutions that have a, a different focus. But I think like any industry, we have all benefited from people who have carved out a niche of expertise and drilled down into it. This is the niche we chose. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love this model. It's really, really cool. And I can see how it would expand into you know, future things that you could possibly do. And since we only we got about seven minutes left. So tell me about the future. Where do you see yourself and your, your institutions in 10 years? Do you see a huge difference, similar, or where do you see yourself in 10 years? So in 10 years, I see us working with somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, three to 5,000 low-income, high-risk households at any given time, all the time, and somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 to 25,000 patients uh, in this approach, going to their homes, uh, integrating um, uh, telemedicine, uh, integrating a concept I call telehome, which is tele-outreach made easy, um, integrating uh, social service virtually, um, uh, making uh, um, follow-up and referral more accountable by having individuals, whether it through wearables or some other mechanism, our Wi-Fi mesh system, uh, us knowing uh, exactly where pe what people are utilizing and the impact that it has, not the outcome, the impact. So, 
So what that you sent somebody to a food bank? Did it solve the issue? Did it create a solution related to food insecurity for that individual and their household members? Yeah. Um, I see us um, charting a new way of looking at technology and its ability to um, truly create um, impactful change in the healthcare space by broadening the definition of what we view health to be, to be more than just um, uh, uh, physiologic metrics. It, it will be new healthcare in, in 10 years as we define it, as we create it um, with the future out here, will be about the measures of resilience and prosperity. Those will be the true new health outcomes in my 10 years. And so when you say, when a person asks me, are they healthy, right? I will say, yeah, they are prospering and they are resilient to challenges that might occur in their life. And, um, and, and if we can do that, then that's, it. that's monumental. We have no investment in making people better at being poor, mm -hmm. not at all. Yeah. It's about creating resilient, prosperous individuals. And if we can do that, then we don't have this thing where we give millions of dollars to poor communities and people come back later, 10 years later, 30 years later, and see still a poor community that yeah. with no, no um, vitality and no, no um, return on the investment that we made to it. Yeah, no, I love that because I think this is the same problem that a lot of a lot of companies have is that they say that this is what they are. They're like they're like a bank or they're a financial services or they're a doctor or they're a lawyer or whatever. But they don't look at the holistic uh, view of what their customer really wants. What does what do they really need in order to get to that endpoint of you know a successful successfully um, realized person. And they just, don't, they just don't step out of their bounds. So you see a medical school, all they do is they teach them how to you know, teach medicine, not how to teach how to, how to improve people's lives in general. And it sounds like that's what you guys are doing. Is that you yeah, well, you know, charting the future is not about giving people what you have. It's about giving people what they need. And what yeah. we're talking about with this medical school is about giving the medical student, future doctor, what they will need, not what medical schools have to offer. And so, if um, and so that's that to me is exciting. Add a layer over it, you know, um, the innovation and technology space that I find myself very active in. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I'm hoping, you know, in 10 years that people are coming out here uh, and they're um, going to the Genesis Zone and they're like, hey, you know, how do I get a zone where I am? How do I leverage what you're doing where we are? And we become the uh, uh, covenants of uh, the data for zones all over the world. Um, mm -hmm. We are um, working not to be um, the headquarters of it, but to be um, a participant in a network of, of communities that um, have these ambitions and we all collectively create solutions that can be shared amongst our network and make helping people cool again. You know, and that's that's, you know, that's at the core, you know, I, you know, I can uh, talk about all the other, you know, fancy things that academicians do, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I was formally trained in public health and I always tell people that it shouldn't be called public health anymore because they don't do anything in public. They're never in the community. And so, you know, so they need to find a new word like office health, you know, cause that's where I see all of the public health practitioners is in the office, um, all the epidemiologists and et cetera. But, you know, COVID exposed that, 
when we needed to be out on the street helping people, we had no infrastructure that understood what people were experiencing, that could connect rapidly to um, individuals and families who were hurting. And so I hope that what we do in 10 years will be the preferential one that people call and say, hey, we need to do something. Can we dispatch some Genesis teams in our city to, to do this, to get on the ground and do what we have to do? And we'll have the platform, the mobile technology platform to do it. We'll have the staff all over the country because our graduates will be all over the country who can facilitate that and help America in this area of expertise that's lacking. And that's yeah. our goal. That's the, that's the ambition. No, I love it. I love it. So we definitely have to keep talking because I have, uh, unfortunately, I, gotta, I, I can't do it today, but we definitely have to have some more conversations because some of the stuff that you talked about, I made some notes and we, we should definitely have you back on the show again. This is great. So tell While we do this, Chris, we, so, so I'm building this. So it takes a long time to build a med school, just so you know. We won't even open our doors till 2024. So why don't we um, commit to a, a, a once a year check-in on the, the okay. progress in building this medical school. Sounds fantastic. That's, that's great. I love it. Tell us how do you, uh, tell everybody how to get in touch with you. If they, is there, do you have a website or what, what's the best way? So, so the, the website for Genesis is genesis.roseman.edu. Mm -hmm. um, Roseman, R-O-S-E-M-A-N.edu. Mm -hmm. um, I, I shared the website about the uh, platform that, we're, um, that we have, Humble, humblehealth.com. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, and then, you know, I'm on, I'm on all the other platforms, right? So Luther Brewster on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Bundle, B-N-D-L-2 on Instagram. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we uh, and, and then, you know, I, I can be old fashioned too. You can just send me an email. I'm a very open uh, person and, you know, you can reach me at lbrewster at roseman.edu. Uh, with any questions and, um, and and anything that can, you know, be supportive of what we're doing. If there's medical students out there who are looking for a better way uh, or, or future medical students who are looking to enter around 2024, send me an email. Let's talk now. Let's let's figure out how we can work together to build something, something rev, you know, revolutionary out here. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Talk it's you been later. a pleasure. I, I'm so happy I got to meet you finally. And so uh, let's, let's now you, you, I got you on the record. Yes. Once a year, we check in Roseman's growth. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Good deal. Take care now.